This is the podcast by The Straits Times. It wasn't your fault that this happened. It was China's fault. And China's going to pay a big price what they've done to this country. China's going to pay a big price what they've done to the world. This was China's fault. This is Asian Insider, and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, here in the United States, the Donald Trump administration has pushed back against China's growing footprint and influence across a wide front. And China remains a factor in the election campaign, although the pandemic has moved front and center again. And the average American voter, unless the U.S. is at war, does not really vote on foreign policy. But President Trump blames China for the pandemic. And there is bipartisan consensus on the Hill and in the security establishment that China is the strategic threat to the United States. My guest today is former Singapore diplomat Bilahari Kosikan, who is currently chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National uh, University of Singapore. Bilahari, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for making time. Well, with impeccable timing, for me at least, uh, you wrote this week an op-ed in the Straits Times in which you argue, among other things, that we should not expect any fundamental shift in foreign policy, whoever wins. But you wrote that a Joe Biden administration would be somewhat saddled with the baggage of the Obama years. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, I think Mr. Obama made uh, wonderful speeches, but he was never very comfortable with exercising power. Uh, I gave some examples in the op-ed, and I don't really want to repeat them. But, you know, geopolitics is fundamentally about power. Uh, it's all very nice to talk about soft power, but you can't have soft power without hard power, and you have to exercise hard power. Give you just two examples. When he drew a red line in Syria over the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime and then failed to enforce it, 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 uh, it sent shudders through, I think, all of American friends everywhere in the world. It, did, uh, it, it eroded the credibility of American power. Uh-huh. When Mr. Trump, over the same issue, bombed Syria while having dinner with Mr. Xi Jinping, he did quite a lot to restore the credibility of American power. And let me give you an example I didn't use in the op-ed. If you remember, Kim Jong-un getting carried away at one point before they met in Singapore, threatened to use his long-range missiles to bracket Guam. You, you know right. what the term bracket means, you know, shoot on both sides of Guam, that means you have it in your sights. Right. And then Mr. Trump rain, uh, threatened the rain fire and fury on Pyongyang. Ever since then, Mr. Kim Jong-un has not tr- tested his long-range missiles, except on a very high trajectory that went nowhere near Guam. And mm-hmm. uh, he has even stopped testing, so far at least, long-range missiles. Now that is an example of deterrence working, because... Mr. Trump's threats were credible. On the other hand, Mr. Obama did really nothing about North Korea at a very crucial time when he was developing his new nuclear capabilities and called doing nothing a policy of strategic patience. Uh, let's not over-idealize pre-Trump American foreign policy. Mr. Obama, there are many good things about his administration, but uh-huh. exercise of power, geopolitics was not among them. You have also written that for more than 40 years, Americans stoically bore the risks, sacrifices and exertions of the Cold War. And we should not be surprised if they are no longer willing to pay any price or bear any burden to maintain international order. But then the question of red lines comes up. Uh, at, at what point does 
America actually enforce a red line. Of course, President Trump did it with Syria, as as you say, but you know there are many other red lines in the region which uh, are going to be seen as tests of America's resolve. I don't think that I don't think uh, that is a great concern, frankly. Uh, um, the most important red line in the region is Taiwan. Uh -huh. uh, South China Sea, East China Sea, even the Himalayas, these are relatively um, manageable issues. Taiwan is an issue can, that can easily get our head. However, I think we have to see uh, the Taiwan issue in context. Uh, China is never going to issue the use of force against Taiwan. That does not mean it will use force. Taiwan. Uh, China has taken more aggressive actions, more aggressive aerial patrols, for example, uh, in the Taiwan Straits and other actions. However, there is nothing that China has done so far recently that is as drastic as what it did in 1995-1996 when they were firing missiles across Taiwan. So I think deterrence does work, you know. I mean, don't forget one very simple fact. America and China are both nuclear weapon states. Nuclear weapon states uh, live, stabilize their relationship by a balance of terror, by the prospect of mutually assured destruction, and it works. There are going to be alarms, excursions, tensions, but I don't think these either of these are irrational powers, and so things can be kept under control, except Taiwan, which is where the risks of things getting out of control are highest because Taiwan to any Chinese administration is a neuralgic issue. It's not something that they can give up without jeopardizing their own right to rule in China. So with the Joe Biden administration potentially, there will be a return uh, to a certain, you know, uh, diplomacy actually, um, and, and it'll sound better. But you said also that President Trump sort of instinctively understands uh, the power, the power relationships of geopolitics, right? It seems to be so. No, I don't know whether I'm doing Joe Biden an injustice or not, right? He is a very experienced uh -huh. person in the foreign policy uh, area since his Senate days. However, he was part of this administration where certain very silly things were done, and I gave some examples. Uh, John Kerry criticizing Russian behavior in Crimea as 19th century behavior in the 21st century is one of the most stupid things I ever heard anybody say. It, it seemed to not understand the fundamentals of foreign policy. Why should you expect your adversary to play by your own rules and, by your, and have your own values? That's not how international relations works. Uh, now, I don't know whether Joe Biden believes that, what John Kerry said, and there are many, there are many reasons to criticize uh, Russian behavior in Crimea, but not that reason. But the fact is, he was part of that administration when silly things like that were said and done, and he will have to live it down. Right. I'm curious as to what you think of um, the Trump administration's approach to Russia. I mean, President Trump has always said that he'd like actually a reset the relationship because you know, they have a world to run together and so forth. But whereas that reset has become you know, a casualty of American domestic politics, basically. So do you well, think... Uh, I don't know whether there is a real prospect of reset because there are real conflicts of interest between Russia and the West. And that's normal. I mean, big powers, you can't expect them to have a, a, a sort of complete identity of interest. 
And I think the West in general, and this is not Mr. Trump's fault or Mr. Biden's fault or Mr. Obama's fault because they inherited the situation. I, I was ambassador in Russia in the early 1990s and I witnessed for myself promises made to the former Soviet Union were just not kept, disregarded. For example, it's quite clearly documented that first Bush administration, Bush 41 administration, uh -huh. uh, cut a deal with Gorbachev not to move NATO east of Germany. Huh? Where is NATO uh -huh. now? It's in Estonia, it's in the Baltic states, it's in Macedonia. Now, I, I, that's clearly will be felt threatening by any Russian uh, government. And that was clearly a breach of uh, uh, a clear understanding. Uh, and the West is paying the price now. I can recall the, the Yeltsin administration and even the first Putin administration, the first part, wanted nothing better than to have a kind of normal relationship with the, with the West. Uh, but they were basically spurred. They were treated as a defeated power whose interests need not be taken into account except in the most pro forma way. And you're paying the price for this now. Now, it would be good if you can stabilize the relationship with Russia. It would be good if you can stabilize the relationship with China. But the fact is, conflict of interest. Conflict doesn't mean a kinetic conflict nearly. You know, competition of interest. Uh, uh -huh. Difference of interest are normal conditions of international relations. Another silly thing I heard is about the return of great power politics. Uh, you, you must have read it and among, here and there in the okay. US. Since when did they ever go away? Yeah, right. <laughs> so to shift the theater slightly to the Middle East, which is now your bailiwick, it seems, from, from what you're doing, what is your evaluation of the US brokered agreements between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE. I mean, there's there's much lamenting that the Palestinian struggle has been abandoned and so forth. And not unrelated, we also have the we also have the imposition of so-called slapback sanctions, right, on Iran. Okay, there are, there are two. They are quite related issues, right? Right. Uh, it all arose from a very fundamental American mistake, which is to evade Iraq. Yeah. I don't think there's any uh, Arab country. Israel may have been a bit different. Arab country that thought it was a good idea, right? But anyway, it was done. That's water under the bridge. You can't undo what is done. Yeah. But it triggered a fundamental rethink of strategic interests uh, in the Middle East. Ever since 1979, Iran, the Islamic Republic, and don't forget, it's not merely Islamic, it's a republic, was seen as very threatening to all the Arab monarchies in particular. Right? Uh, but America was there, it was the option, it, it kind of stabilized the situation insofar as a very unstable and volatile re region can be stabilized. But after the invasion of Iraq, things changed. It was clearly a mistake, but clearly it helped accelerate what I call the, the uh, exhaustion of America after the exertions of the Cold War. Uh -huh. Because those wars in the Middle East were the longest wars that America has ever fought. Longer than the Second World War, longer than the Vietnam War, longer than the Korean War. And there seemed right. to be no end. And in fact, they are still going on, but we don't call them war anymore. Uh -huh. So America wanted to withdraw. It was not going to play a direct role in the security of the Middle East anymore because its interests had also changed. For a start, it was no longer uh, dependent on Middle East energy. So these countries began to recalculate their interests. 
uh, and their interests were clearly aligned with Israel. Now, I'm not saying it's difficult, it's easy for them to, to uh, reach out to Israel because of uh -huh. the baggage of many, many decades. But needs must and the strategic interests prove more compelling. On the other hand, the Palestinians, you've seen the, the uh, interview given by uh, Prince Banda recently, three parts, okay. right? Uh, okay. And I think he's absolutely right. The Palestinians have been betrayed over and over again by their own leaders, uh, who has, as one uh, Israeli foreign minister put it, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh -huh. And in an eerie echo of that, the uh, a Saudi, a senior Saudi royal recently said, they have always bet on the wrong horse, on, uh, on the wrong side. Now, I am a frequent visitor to Israel and I, I occasionally go across to the West Bank. The last time I was there was about two years ago, the West Bank, I mean Ramallah. And I met an old friend of mine, I shan't mention his name, he was a senior person in Fatah and he had just retired from politics and I asked him why. And he said, look, we have failed in the struggle, we have failed in governance, what's there to do? Oh. Okay. Now, the Palestinians, right. one can feel sympathy for them, but feeling sympathy uh -huh. does not absolve them for the responsibility that they, uh, for the situation they are in. They, they, they have basically been betrayed by their own leaders, whether Fatah or Hamas. So very quickly, last 30 seconds, what, so you see these new agreements in the region as a genuine breakthrough? Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a manifestation of trends that were triggered by the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which fundamentally changed people's, forced people to change their geopolitical calculations. Okay, Bilahari Kausikan, thank you very much again for your time. Thank you, Namal. See you around. Great discussion. Always good to bye hear bye. from you. Bye. So, no fundamental change is expected in America's foreign policy. Uh, whoever wins the November 3rd election, there might be changes in, changes in style, but not in the fundamentals. There will be four relationships which will be very closely watched, of course, going forward. China, North Korea, Iran and Russia. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Kosh. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.